and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. As we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, it all points to Jesus, a little series that we've been doing during the month of December. Um, where we've kind of been acknowledging the wonder of Christmas and everything going on, and, and we've been asking ourselves, or I've been asking you maybe, like, do you ever wonder? And then, of course, you can fill in the blank. I almost fell over. You can fill in the blank with whatever that might be. Do you ever wonder about anything? Do we ever? And we all do. We wonder about different things. And when we were kids, we wondered about some things. As we got older, we kind of grew out of that wonder, but then we discovered new things to wonder about in our adult life, Um, and we wonder about things, right? Like, do you ever wonder why it's so hard to eat healthy and to exercise and be healthy when we know that it's good for our health? It's hard to eat healthy. Hello. It's hard to exercise. We'd rather Netflix and diet pill. Can I hear an amen from some... But uh, some of you are wondering, speaking of Netflix, how you're going to survive once Netflix stops making friends available to watch on Wednesday. Yeah, what are you going to do about that? Some of us wonder about raises and pay raises and job security and all of those things. Christians, we, we a lot of times, we have wonder too, right? There are things that we're going to be like wondering about heaven, what is heaven going to be like? And are we really going to see the ones that we love when we get there? And, and which version of, of our loved ones? Version, you know, and then maybe if you're not a theist, if you're here today and you're kind of struggling with faith or with doubt or, or those kinds of things, you might be wondering how in the world Christians can be so naive to believe in these kinds of things, to hold on to hopes that Christians hold on to, like this, this heaven that we talk about. But then, if you're not really sure about that, then you kind of wonder too. Like, what does happen after death? Is there anything after death? And maybe you've lost a loved one in the past, and you can't help but wonder, is there more? Is there more than just this life. And, and sometimes our wonder leads to fear, and sometimes our wondering actually comes from fear, and sometimes wonder can just have this amazing effect where it actually leads to courage and discovery and, and new ideas and pathways. And, and it turns out, as we've kind of talked about in the first couple of lessons, that what we're handled, handed from our families or maybe what we just experience in life, our circumstances throughout our life, kind of provide a framework They hand to us, they give to us a way of seeing the world. What we're taught and what we experience creates almost like a window, and it's through the filter of that glass, through that window, that we see life and the world around us, and that window is sometimes called a worldview. And it's one of the reasons that we wonder, because our worldview actually does not give us all of the answers to life. That framework or that window that we view life through and that we process life through, it can define the values and and the players and, and the measures that cause us to wonder. And so as we wonder about some things, as we live through some things and struggle with some things, it gets maybe go away or maybe new things come in, you know, that cause us to have new wonder and new mysteries and new things to figure out. And, and this worldview, this way of interpreting and process life, a lot of times it comes from our childhood. A lot of times it comes from our upbringing or the things that were passed on to us in traditions of our family. Uh, sometimes it comes from a lack of childhood. Maybe you had to grow up 
too quickly or too soon or before you were ready. Sometimes our worldview can come or be altered by fears and insecurities or maybe tragedy or loss or even unanswered prayers. And so we wonder about things in life. We wonder and we take guesses some things about some things. And we're, we're more sure of some things and we're less sure of other things. But, but none of the, the things that we wonder about are wondered about without influence. Everything that we have learned, everything that we have believed, everything that we have experienced in life, all colors our worldview. Now, I'm a Christian. Most of the people here are Christians as well. Here's something else that Christians believe, that God actually became one of us to say something wonderful to us, that God actually sent his son to our side of the window, so to speak. And we can't see everything clearly, and we don't know everything that's out there, and we can't clearly define or clearly give answers to everything. But into our darkness, that's appropriate, into our confusion, right, into our side of the window, God sent his son to be a reference point for God himself, that even as we journey through life and even as we discover some things about life or encounter other things that we never really end up discovering the answers to, even as science kind of upgrades and updates and medicine changes and we make new discoveries about the mind and psychology and, and all of the other things that we are learning as a race, that we can always look at the reference that God has sent to our side of the window and never really have to wonder what God is like that we may never fully understand on this side of the window how all of the dots connect, but we know that when they finally do, it will look like love. In fact, in the first couple of lessons, we looked at what most historians think are kind of a little bit, maybe like a transcript of a sermon perhaps, a letter that was written to Jewish followers of Jesus in the first century who were undergoing intense persecution and were starting to doubt and starting to wonder, were we right? Were we, were we okay to put our faith and our trust in Jesus, to be the Savior of everything, to be the one that was going to put everything right like God promised. And this is in the newer part of your Bible, in the New Testament, and it's what we call the book of Hebrews, where it's not really a book, it's more like a letter, or like I said, a transcript of a sermon. But whoever the author of Hebrews was, because we're not really sure who it was, they were trying to refocus the worldview of those early Jewish believers, because the worldview, the way they were seeing life and circumstances and the pain and the struggles they were going through, had been shifted, or it was shifting away from Jesus. And for various and even understandable reasons, they were starting to maybe wander from their faith in Jesus because of the things they were wondering. And so the author of Hebrews was kind of saying, hey guys, don't lose focus. Don't lose the perspective that God has sent someone into our world to show us what he is like. And I know things are bad right now, but here's what needs to happen. And in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And in this one simple statement, the author does something so powerful. And early Christians got this, right? Though they were in danger of forgetting it, just like we sometimes are in danger in our walk with Jesus of forgetting this. That the issue in Christianity, the thing that we have to focus on, the thing that we need to make sure that we never lose sight of, is not a theology. It's not necessarily a list of doctrines. It's not about a church or your experiences at a church or a philosophy, but it is a person. It is the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the founder of faith. It's through him and what his life tells us that we even begin to trust God. 
And Jesus is the perfecter of our faith. It's through having our eyes on him that our trust in God will be made perfect. And Christianity and the Christian life and the Christian experience and following Jesus actually begins and ends with Jesus. With Jesus. Not with a book, not with a building, not with a ritual, not with certain formulaic prayers or anything like that, but it all begins and ends with Jesus. And everything else serves that point. And there are some here, and, and maybe it's you, or maybe it's someone you know. Maybe it's someone that's here or not here. Maybe it's somebody that you love. And there has actually been this disconnect in them between the faith, the Christian faith that they were handed as a child, and, and the experiences of actual life. Because we were told some things, or they were maybe told some things, and then as we, or as they kind of ran through life or encountered life, and as life began to happen to us and to them, there were some things where the way that we processed the world, our Christian worldview, it didn't seem to make sense, and it didn't seem to add up. And there were some things that they were kind of blind spots to us, and some places and circumstances where we couldn't see clearly. And maybe you came to that point, or maybe they came to that point, or maybe you're close to that point now where you said... This way of seeing the world, this Christian experience, this way of processing life is not working for me anymore. And so people drift from the faith. They begin to wonder about their faith, and then they begin to wander from their faith. And so we landed on a question in the first couple of lessons, which was this. What was your faith fixed on before you lost it? What was their faith really fixed on before they walked away from following Jesus? And so before we leave the Christmas season, and, and New Year's is this week, I know Mariah Carey's still singing in a few stores out there, right? But if your faith is shaky, before we leave, leave this Christmas season, if you've maybe lost your faith, if you've doubted, if you're trying to discover your faith, or maybe trying to come back to your faith, I want us to maybe consider today, in this final lesson that we're going to be talking about this, this subject, to take the advice of that Hebrew preacher just one more time to look past all of the mess, look past the hurt in your life, look past the the confusion, look past all of the people and the buildings and everything else. And if you have been considering Christianity or considering or thinking about following Jesus or following Jesus again, I want to invite you today to simply fix your eyes on Jesus. Look past everything else and just consider him. Consider him. So in this age of, of science and reason, uh, one of the reasons that people kind of struggle with this whole thing is because of this age of science and reason that we live in, that, you know, things get proven by a microscope or, or by test tubes or else things get discarded. And, and there's this idea that just kind of, it's just under, it's, it's like a subtext in everything. In all of our educational institutions and in, in middle schools and high schools and colleges all around, there's this idea in post-Christian America, that being a follower of Jesus requires this mind-numbing, experience-denying faith. That there are things that if you're a Christian that you can't look at and consider. There are some ideas out there and some, some theories that you can't consider too clearly. And there are some books and thoughts and, and philosophies that people are worried about that if those thoughts or if those people get into your life and begin to affect you, that you will lose your faith, totally have your faith destroyed. And so you need to isolate yourself from that. You need to completely cut yourself off from those arenas of thinking and science and all of those kinds of things. Or maybe... Maybe the objection that some people have is like this experience-denying objection, 
right? They don't want to come back to church because if they do, then they have to pretend like this doesn't happen in the world or pretend that that never happened to me or pretend or try and forget rather that that did happen to me or maybe to a loved one or someone in my family. And this idea is floating around out there, these ideas. And, and this is some of the debris that's in the way of people kind of finding a true Christian faith as Jesus intended us to have a real Christian faith. But here's the thing. Although some people think that being a follower of Jesus requires mind-numbing, experience-denying faith, the original version of Christianity did not require that. The original Christians, the early followers of Jesus, they didn't want you to check your brain at the door. They didn't want you to kind of paint with a a, a rose-colored brush over all of the tragedy and the pain and the suffering and the experiences of life. They never pretended that things were perfect. They never put on a front that, you know, that things looked better than they actually were. And Jesus never asked his followers to not look or to not consider something, except when it came to like the ultra-religious and the way that they maybe define what it meant to live a godly existence. And the reason that some people have thought that this is required of following Jesus in our world is because of a misunderstanding of this simple word right here, the word faith. And people are confused about what it means to have faith, what it means to be a person of faith. And so I want to spend some time today talking about uh, this thing. And, and this idea gets talked about by, you know, so much by, by people like me, by pastors or priests or other spiritual mentors. And, and, and I don't think it's intentional, but we all tend to kind of like add things on to this idea of faith that Jesus never intended to get added on to the idea of faith. I don't think it's intentional, but sometimes the idea of what it means for a person to have faith in Jesus is confusing to people who are trying to find their way back to a relationship with God. And since the church is responsible for making disciples, for the, since the church is kind of responsible for, for fanning into flame, so to speak, that little bit of faith that the early Christians believed every person has a measure of, then the church, pastors and teachers, and, and we are responsible for making sure that we clarify what Jesus meant when he talked about someone having faith. So what is faith? How do you get faith? What does it do in the life of Christians? What does it mean in the life of a Christian to have faith? There's something right off the bat that I want to tell you that faith is not. Faith is not a shock collar for God. Faith is not a way for you to train your deity. In other words, it's not some mystical, magical force that if we just get enough of it, Or maybe if enough of us get some of it, that we can use it to twist God's arm into doing something that God wasn't planning on doing. That is not what faith is. And this is one of the reasons that people get twisted up about their faith. Because they want something from God. And so they think, well, I've got to believe really hard and God will do it for me. And so we believed really hard, right? We prayed really hard. But then that thing never happened, And so what do we do? We believed harder. We prayed harder. We prayed longer. Maybe you even fasted if you got really desperate for something, right? But not during Christmas. Can I hear an amen? It it was important, but it's not that important, right? So you prayed. Or maybe your pastor even prayed. And it was loud prayers that were given. It was group prayers that were given. There were hungry prayers when you were fasting for something. And God didn't answer. And it still happened, or maybe it never happened. And so then you wondered, 
And then when it seemed like all of the evidence pointed to a God that didn't care, a God that didn't hear, maybe didn't even exist, after you wondered for a little while, sometimes people end up wandering from their faith. And faith is not this invisible force for manipulating a deity. That's called magic. That's called paganism. But that was never the idea of Christianity. So faith is not a way for you to train God or to manipulate God into doing something that you want Him to do, but He wasn't really planning on doing. Here's another thing. Faith is not a formula that you have to solve. Faith is not something that only really holy people get. Only really smart people get. There are a few special people that are a little bit closer to God than everybody else, and only they really know how to operate faith, right? And you put in a good 25 years doing some hard and holy work, and maybe someday you'll awaken to a golden light shining around you where suddenly all of the puzzle pieces fit, no more mysteries and no more wonder. You will just be full of faith. No, no, that's not the way faith works. That's not what faith is. Faith is not something that people have because they stand a certain way or kneel a certain way, learn a certain prayer, know certain leverage words to make God move. Again, that just sounds like magic. You don't need to know a special incantation, a special type of prayer to get God to do something for you. That's not what it means to have faith. In fact, the writer of that letter that we call Hebrews, the writer actually gave a definition for what faith really is. But a lot of us that grew up in church, you know, we've, we've heard this verse before that I'm about to read, and it's still confusing to us. But the author, the reason that they give a definition is because early Christians have started getting confused about what faith was as well. And why were they getting confused? Because life wasn't going so great. Because they were experiencing persecution and loss of home and loss of family and loss of loved ones. And they were hungry and they were broke and and they were homeless. And they were starting to wonder, like, hey, we have faith, or at least we thought we had faith. And we're praying for God to do something different. And it just doesn't seem to be working. And so the author of Hebrews writes, hey, guys, first, faith is simple. And second, faith like you're imagining it to be is not the reason that we follow Jesus, which is a huge, huge deal, that we don't follow Jesus because Jesus makes life go great. And so here's what the author had to say about faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is, this is probably a Jewish man, according to most scholars, writing to a Jewish Christian audience. And so a Jewish Christian audience, some, some people would come out of Judaism. And so at the intersection of Judaism and Christianity, this monotheistic worldview. Here's what faith is. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for. Now, that word hope also gets misunderstood sometimes. So now he's given us a word to clarify what faith is that we sometimes confuse ourselves. What is hope? What's hope? Well, hope is this. Hope is wanting something to be without a guarantee. That's what hope is. You hope you get a bonus at Christmas time, right? Especially if you use your credit card to buy any Christmas gifts. You hope you get a raise. You hope someday to get married. You hope someday to get undebted. Uh, you know, you you hope for a date. You hope so when hope so becomes a confidence that something will be so that is faith. That's what faith is. I'm really hoping that this will happen. And when you get to that point where you're like, no, this is going to happen, that is 
faith, when it goes from being pie in the sky to an assurance that something's going to become a reality. But that leads to another question, right? How can we become confident that what we hope for will actually be? How do we get to that place where we move from hope so to confident that it will be so? And the writer of Hebrews is taking his cues from Jesus, and just like Jesus, he makes it a little bit more confusing first. And he doesn't tell us the answer to that question right away. He just says the same thing in another way. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. But how? How do I get from hoping so to an assured state that it will be so? How do we get from not being able to see something to confident that it will actually happen? Well, this is the thing. It's really simple. And actually, this could end the message right here. I actually had to just tack on a bunch of other stuff that doesn't even make sense. So just listen to this next part, and then you can check out for the rest of the message, all right? You guys ready for this? Think about the raise thing that I was talking about, where you hope to get a raise. You hope for a raise until one day your boss tells you you are getting a raise. Now, on the day that your boss tells you you are getting a raise, it's probably not payday that day. Have you seen your raise yet? No is the correct answer. Have you seen your raise yet? Has it hit your bank account yet? But someone that you trust, someone in this case with the power to make good on what has been said, has made you a promise, has given you a sign, has given you a confirmation of a future thing. And so you go from hoping for a raise to being told you're getting a raise, which then gives you the confidence that your raise is going to happen. That is faith. That is faith. It's that simple. It's not complicated. But sometimes we Christians make faith really, really complicated. And he goes on and he explains in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 something that I've kind of summarized this way. Faith is the confidence that God is and that God will do what he promised to do. Faith is nothing more than confidence that God is and that God will do what he has said that he will do. Now look, this is the part, as it relates to people that are struggling with faith or wrestling with faith or wanting to come back to faith or you know, maybe thinking about walking away from their faith. Listen, this is the thing. This is where it gets tricky, so stay with me just for a little bit. We don't believe that God is because of faith. All right? Don't get lost on me. Stick with me, all right? Faith is the confidence that God is. But we don't believe that God is because of faith. That would be a circular reference. That would be illogical. We believe that God is because of evidence that exists in our universe that God is. Think about that. The evidence that exists. There is no proof. I did not say proof because God requires faith. But God does not leave us or lead us to a blind faith. God gives us evidence. God gives us signs. God gives us hints along the way that we can trust that there is a creator, God. So we believe that God is because of evidence. Now here's the second part to this. We don't believe that God keeps his promises because of faith. That's circular. We have faith that God keeps his promises because of the evidence in our lives and the evidence in the lives around us that God, in fact, does keep his promises. 
So we don't believe in faith because of faith. We don't have faith in faith. We don't believe in believing, but rather out of the evidence that exists in our world, out of the evidence that exists in our lives, we then have a confidence that God is and that God is going to do what God has promised that he will do. Even when I can't see it, even when I'm not holding it yet, even when it hasn't hit my bank account yet. Can I hear a good amen from some people who just did some Christmas shopping? Even when we can't see it. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And then this Hebrew writer to Hebrew Christians goes on and talks about something that we don't normally know about or we just maybe growing up outside of church maybe have not heard all of these stories. And he says, this is what the ancients, talking about the old people before Jesus came along, the people in the Old Testament, this is what the ancients were actually commended for. Men and women who acted as if God was. Men and women who lived their life and behaved in ways as if God would keep what he said that he would keep, that God would do what he had promised he would do. And it's an impressive list, and you need to read Hebrews chapter 11. It's the chapter of the week. You need to go home and read Hebrews chapter 11 and then go study the stories of these men and women that are talked about there. It's incredible things in their lives, incredible life stories, incredible things that they accomplished by faith, by the confidence that God exists and that God was going to do what God had promised to do. And some of these people we've heard of and some of we haven't. One of them's name is Abraham. He's kind of like the original guy. He's the, what we call the father of faith. It's not Abraham Lincoln. It's a different guy. People get that confused sometimes. But how many have heard of Abraham? Raise your hand. I can't see, but I bet there's a lot of you. I'm sure there are so many of you. Abraham was a man who existed 4,000 years ago. Abraham came from a wealthy family, left a wealthy home, and became a homeless nomad wandering in the desert. Why did he do that? Why did he leave home? Why did he leave wealth and status and position in his community? Because God promised Abraham that he would give him a whole land to himself that Abraham had never seen and didn't know about. And Abraham believed that God existed and Abraham believed that God would do what God had said he would do. And so Abraham left home. Abraham is the father of faith. He had a simple confidence that God existed and that God would do what God had said he would do. There's another man in there named Gideon, which is like the original 300 story. Sorry, Sparta. You know, it's a thousand years before the Persians and the Greeks. Gideon took 300 men against an army of around 60,000. And in the middle of the night, around a 200 to 1 ratio, he charged into a valley where that army was camped with nothing but candles and clay pitchers and smashed them. And there was this huge military victory that was wrought, and all of the army ended up turning on themselves and killing each other. And you know why Gideon marched into the valley 200 to 1 with his own men being outnumbered? Why did he go in there with nothing but candles and clay pitchers? It wasn't because he was suicidal. It wasn't because he was crazy. It was because Gideon believed that God existed, and Gideon believed that God was about to give him the victory that God had promised to give him. And so Gideon was a man of faith. That's what faith is. How many of you heard of Moses? The Prince of Egypt story, you probably heard that, right? He left Egypt when he was about 40 years old as a fugitive 
There was wanted posters in all the post offices in Egypt for Moses with Moses' face on there. His face was on milk carton. No, that's lost kids. It was, his face was everywhere. They wanted Moses because Moses had murdered someone actually. And he left the land of Egypt, but then he went back later and marched right into the king's throne room, not even worrying about being arrested, not even worrying about being thrown into prison and put to death. Why would he risk being put to death? Why would he risk going back into Egypt? Because God existed to Moses. And because God's promise that he would take Moses into that place and Moses would actually leave it, lead and enslave people out was something that Moses held on to. And so Moses acted on that promise. And Moses was a man of faith. Faith. It's the confidence that God is based on the evidence that exists in our world. It's the confidence that God will keep his promises because of the evidence that God has kept his promises before. And that's what we are to be, a people of faith. And listen, this is why this is so important. Because starting with Abraham, God had given these people not only personal promises, but a promise that was bigger than all of them. A promise that was big enough for the whole entire world. And all of the, Hebrew, all of the heroes rather that we find in, in Hebrews chapter 11 not only acted in confidence that God was going to keep his personal promise to them, they acted in a way, in confidence, that God would keep his global promise to all of mankind. And again, that one great, incredible promise of a rescuer for mankind started with Abraham about 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years before Jesus shows up on the scene. And here is what God promised everyone through Abraham. And he tells Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. And anybody know whether or not Abraham actually became a nation? He did. He actually became several nations through his descendants, didn't he? But definitely the nation of Israel. Most of us here can't name one other person in history that actually became a nation. And yet a homeless nomad in the middle of a desert that claimed to be talking to somebody that nobody else could see said, I have been promised that one day I am going to become a great nation. And here we are 4,000 years later, halfway around the world. And yes, Abraham has become a great nation. It's incredible. It's unbelievable. It's unprecedented. And yet we believe it is evidence. And then God tells him, and I will bless you. And I don't even have time to talk about all of the blessings that have landed on the nation of Israel throughout history. It's incredible to me that more Nobel Peace Prizes have been rewarded to Jewish people as a people group than any other group combined. The Jewish people make up only a fraction of 1% of the world's population. But did you know that one out of every five Nobel laureates is Jewish? God has blessed the Jewish people. And God is using the Jewish people to bless everyone else. And he told Abraham, and I will make your name great. And most of the people here knew the name of Abraham before you even got here this morning. And you will be a blessing. And here we are 4,000 years later. And this promise has come true. But God didn't just stop with Abraham himself. But he promised a blessing on you and on me through Abraham. And he tells him, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Which didn't make sense at the time. Because when Abraham was alive, people didn't bless other people. People conquered other people. 
People raided other people. People enslaved other people. But God promised, no, there's going to be a new paradigm that's going to come into existence through you, Abraham. Your nation is not only going to be a blessing to yourselves, your nation is not only going to be blessed for yourselves and not just the people immediately around you, but through you, through your people, through your family, through your nation, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That is the promise of Christian of Christmas given 4,000 years years ago, 2,000 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And 2,000 years after God made this promise to Abraham, Jesus Christ came into the world. And now 4,000 years after the promise was made to Abraham, in every language, in every country, in every major city almost in the entire world, right now, in our time, every people in the world is blessed by the Jesus, by the Messiah, by the rescue that was promised through Abraham. We are blessed. We are forgiven. We have been given mercy and kindness and the grace and the love of God. And so we call ourselves people of faith. Why? Because we kind of believe that God is. Based on the evidence that we see in our own lives, We believe, we are confident that God will do what God has promised to do. Faith, faith, faith. Now here's the thing. In his lifetime, Abraham never saw it come into existence. In Gideon's lifetime, he never saw that global promise happen. In Moses' lifetime, he never saw the promised rescuer come into being. You remember the writer of Hebrews? He talks about this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, talking about all of these heroes of faith. All of these people were still living by faith when they died. These men and women still believed that God is and that God would do what he promised to do, even though they never saw it happen in their lifetime. They believed that God was still going to come through for the whole world, that Abraham's nation was going to be great, and that all the peoples in the world were going to be blessed and rescued through what God had promised to Abraham. And that promise, that assurance, that confidence that God would keep his word was the filter. It was the worldview. It was the, th- the framework through which they viewed their circumstances. That promise, that confidence, that faith was the window through which they viewed their choices and their decisions and their disappointments and the pain and the failures of life and the joys and the behaviors and the actions. They were people of faith all the way up till the day that they died, that God is and that God will do what God has promised to do. And if they did that on that side of Christmas, how much more we on this side of Christmas that have seen the life of Jesus, that know of his words and his works, how much more we in the pains and the circumstances and the tragedies and the highs and the lows of life, how much more we should be people that have a confidence that God is and that God will come through and do what only God can do. See, this is what faith was always intended to be. Nobody ever in the early Christian world, nobody ever imagined that faith was some kind of way to manipulate God, 
Nobody thought you could twist God's arm into doing things for you. God was to be worshipped. God was to be feared. God was never imagined to be able to be controlled. Nobody used faith as a leverage with God. Nobody imagined there to be a secret formula to use to control him. They simply looked back on the promises that God had made their ancients, their ancestors, and they trusted that even though things looked bad for them, and even though their world was, was just you know, racked and, and, and havoc was being wreaked on them, that God would come through. And that was their working definition of faith. In fact, there's one story in, in the career of Jesus, and this is so beautiful, so beautiful, that there was this man who was, Luke tells us that he was covered in leprosy. And we can't even imagine the horror of that disease. Most of us haven't even seen photographs of people who have been covered in leprosy, who are covered in leprosy. And this man had, was losing his extremities like all over his body and, and had open sores. And we can't even imagine the horror just beyond the physical pain of having to leave his family, having to leave his hometown and, and his village and having no life and no touch from anyone. Nobody could touch him. He was an outcast in that world and in that society. And one day as Jesus is walking along, he kind of encounters this man. And this man somehow, we're not told how, and he had to go through a lot to be able to get close to Jesus. And he comes close to Jesus. And this is so powerful. It's so powerful. He falls down at the feet of Jesus, and he shows us what faith is meant to be. He speaks words. He shows us a prayer that is a prayer of faith. And he says this in Luke chapter 5 and verse 12, Lord, which is a sign of respect to Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Not, Jesus, I believe you're going to heal me. I believe you're going to heal me. I believe you're going to heal me. I believe I'm not healed yet. Jesus, I believe you're going to heal me. I believe you're going to heal me. I believe. Can we get a group together, please, to pray for me? Can we fast somebody? You know, now I fasted, so now, Jesus, you owe me one. Not, I give big offerings at the temple, and so now, Jesus, you need to do something for me. No, he simply said, Jesus, I have perfect confidence that if you are willing to, if you would even just promise it to me, if you would be willing, then you can make me clean. Now, why? Why would a leper come to Jesus and ask him to do what seemed impossible to do? Not because he had blind faith. Not because he had deaf faith. Not because he had some random faith that nobody else had. No, he had heard stories. There was evidence in his world that Jesus was a healer. The reports were everywhere. The evidence was overwhelming. Luke, who recorded this story for us, Luke would later tell us, or tells us rather at the beginning of his letter, I interviewed some of these people. I tracked them down. I found them. I went and visited them in their homes and put together an orderly account of all of the things that Jesus began to say and to do. And this leper had heard some things about Jesus. And based on the evidence that was in his world, he had a confidence that Jesus could do whatever Jesus would promise him that he would do. And I love, I love Jesus' response. I love this next part. So Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man where nobody else had touched him, maybe for years, where he had had to walk away from the touch of his wife or his children perhaps, or shaking hands with people or hugging people in his world. Jesus reached out and gave him the one thing he had not felt in years. Jesus reached out and touched the man and said, I am willing 
because of the man's faith. Not blind faith. Not ridiculous faith. Not evidence-denying faith. Not circumstance-denying faith. But there was something about Jesus. And in the stories of the people all around him, this man found the evidence to be overwhelming. That when Jesus touched diseased people, he didn't contract their disease, but rather they always caught his wellness. And so Jesus, if you would be willing, you can make me clean. Whether you do it or not, it's not really up to me. It's up to you. I'm not saying you have to. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I just know that you can. And if you make the promise, it is going to happen. And so Jesus, if you will, you can make me, you can make me clean. Mm, simply a confidence. Simply a confidence. And Jesus saw it. And he looked at the man and he said, I am willing. I'm willing. But man, this seems like a super simple version of faith, doesn't it? Faith is supposed to be harder than this. Can I hear an amen from anybody that's ever prayed an unanswered prayer? We've prayed those prayers. We've prayed those prayers. We've been desperate. We've cried. We've groaned. God, you've got to come to faith. It's supposed to be harder than this. Faith is supposed to be spookier than this. I'm not sure exactly. It's like, you know, remember your old cell phone, like back in the day, like, can you hear me now? Remember the, can you hear me now? And like, you ended up having to talk like this just to get the signal to come through. Anybody ever do that? I can't see. So anyway, uh, faith is supposed to be like that. Like, do I need to pray a certain way? Do I need to say certain things? Faith feels more mysterious than this. And here's the reason that sometimes we resist this really simple definition of faith. Here's the reason why. Because it takes control of the outcome out of our hands. And we don't like that. If I'm going to pray for something, then I at least want to have a little bit of influence on whether or not those things happen. Otherwise, why pray so hard? Otherwise, why pray so long? I thought I'd at least get some amens for some people that are struggling with their prayer lives in that one. No? Right? Anybody ever found extreme comfort in Jesus, you know, when he talked about in Matthew chapter 6 about don't do long prayers? No? Okay. Your pastor's not supposed to say that from the pulpit. So erase that part of the recording, if you will. Listen, here's the good news, though. If you don't like giving the control of the outcome of something, giving it up and letting it go out of your hands, here's the good news. If the control over the outcome is completely out of your hands, then the control over the outcome of what you ask for is completely in God's hands. And isn't it a lot better off in God's hands than in your hands anyway? Can I hear an amen from anybody besides Brother Garth Brooks that wants to thank God for unanswered prayers? Hello, somebody. Some prayers we've prayed needed to be left unanswered. Can I hear an amen? But if we feel that we can leverage some force or some ritual or some words to get God to do what we want our God to do, listen to me, that is not Christianity. That is paganism. That is magic. That is not what Jesus promised. That's not what God intended. And if that's the way that you see faith or you think of prayer and faith and how it's supposed to work, then when things don't work out, And when God doesn't come through and answer, you'll wonder if you prayed hard enough. 
You'll wonder if you couldn't have fasted a few more days. You'll wonder if you were good enough to have prayed that or, you know, if you had forgotten to repent over some of your bad. When things don't happen like we pray they will, we lose faith. We lose confidence. We get frustrated. And so we stop praying and we stop believing. And you guys all know that you're not supposed to stop believing. Like the old poet said, don't stop. (laughs) It's really quiet in here today. And I'm up here with one light, and y'all aren't preaching with me. Hello. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Can we just be real in church and be honest this morning? Like we've prayed those prayers. We've been desperate, and it's not even silly prayers sometimes. They're legitimate prayers, things our hearts are broken over. And we wonder, why isn't God answering? Why isn't God doing? Why isn't God working? I think God should be doing this. I think the outcome should be. And we want to control what we make God do and how we allow God to operate in our lives and in our world. But if you would be willing to give up the control over the outcome to what you are trusting in, in God for. You're going to find it to be so much better than any answer you could have dreamed up on your own. So let it go. Come on, somebody. I'm trying this morning. Let it go. Give it to God. That's not faith. If you could twist God's arm into doing your bidding, that's something else. Faith is simply the trust that God is and that what God has promised to do, God will do. And I will live and I will act and I will behave in faith. Listen, this is a real deal in post-Christian America. People are losing their faith in God because some people have signed God's name to promises God never made. God never promised to be your genie. God never promised to be your Santa Claus. When you look at the lives of the early Christians, their lives are full of tragedy and pain and heartbreak and heartache. And when we hear the stories of some people that have walked away from following Jesus, it's heartbreaking. And you realize it's no wonder they faltered. It's no wonder they were disappointed. It's no wonder they stopped trusting. It's no wonder they stopped coming and trying and praying and believing and trust, trusting in God. But their eyes were fixed on the wrong thing. Their faith was in the wrong thing. Their faith was in faith. Their faith was in prayer. And like the Hebrew author says, what I want to say to you today is forget about the ritual and all of that kind of stuff. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Not the one that's promised to make your life great, but the one that has promised to be with you in good days and in bad days, in high times and in low times. He can be trusted. What he promised to do, he will do. Because if you believe in the other kind of faith and God doesn't come through like you think he should come through, then your faith one day will be shipwrecked. You'll begin to wonder. And over time, you're going to find it really easy to wander the faith from following Jesus. But God did not show his love. He did not prove his concern for you by saying that bad things would never happen. Hello. He didn't say that he loved you by promising that every sickness would be healed. God's love is more wonderful than broken promises might say. 
In fact, an early Christian named Paul, and this is so powerful because of who Paul was. Paul shows up on the pages of history as a Christian hater. Paul shows up on the pages of, of history having Christians killed, having Christians arrested and persecuted. He hated Christians, and he hated their Christ. And then one day, Paul became a Christian. And because of what he lived, because of his experience, because of that conversion, because of what he encountered when he finally met the object of the Christian faith, when he finally fixed his eyes on the one who's, who was worthy of him fixing his eyes too, because of this awakening that he had to what God says over us, Paul said, look, God demonstrates his love for us not by making the pathway perfect, It has nothing to do with making sure we're comfortable in life. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Paul knows about this. Paul is writing from his own life experience. He was alive when Jesus was put to death. He was probably in the secret meetings, in the secret chambers. He remembers how much he hated Jesus and his movement. And yet Paul knows that it was then, when I was at my worst, when I was at my lowest point in life, that's when God first loved me. That's when God gave his son for me. And maybe that's you. And maybe that's me right now still. While we were still sinners, still in our mess, still making a mess, still getting it wrong, still not knowing, still doubting, still running, still ruining things in our lives. God has loved us. He has proven his love for us. So the wonder that we have, the things that we question sometimes when it comes to our relationship with the creator God, the part that makes us not sure of where we stand with him, the part that we wonder about, like, what is God like? And does God like me? All of it, all of it was settled completely. And finally, not in your answered prayer, not when God did what you prayed and asked really hard that God would do, but it was settled 2,000 years ago on a hill called Calvary. It was settled on a cross was settled 33 years after Christmas first came into existence when Jesus marched up a hill carrying your sins and my sins on his back. And our evil and our wrong pierced his hands and pierced his feet and suspended him there between heaven and earth. And he took the penalty of our sins and he returned to us only favor and mercy and kindness so that we in our pain, so that we as we struggle through this life and confusion and heartache and brokenness and darkness, such darkness at times that we would never have to wonder about God's love for us, about God's love for you, God's love for me. See, that's the message of the Christmas season. That's the reason for the holiday season. That's the message of Christmas. And wherever you've been or Wherever you are, or maybe wherever you feel yourself leaning or heading, if you still wonder if God loves you if, you, if you still wonder if God is real, or maybe if God is really interested in you or in your, in your life, if you still wonder if God wants you, or maybe if God wants you back, if you still wonder 
if the Christian life and following Jesus is really worthy of your effort or following Jesus is something that you can give yourself to. This whole series has been dedicated to pushing past all of the distractions, pushed past the confusion of what you've experienced before, pushed past all of the hurts and the disappointments, pushed past all of the things that did happen or maybe did not happen, the things you couldn't believe or never heard evidence for, and just simply focus your eyes, to fix your eyes on Jesus, to look at his life, to look at his death, to look at his resurrection and, and think about what it says to you. And Christmas and the holidays are about the wonder of God, how wonderful his love is, how wonderful, how full of wonder his grace and his mercy and his attention for you are. And if those people of old, the people before Jesus' life, the ancients, as the writer of Hebrew calls them, they looked forward to God keeping his promise. But we, on this side of Calvary, we on this side of Christmas, we look back at a time that really existed within human history, at a time that actually happened within historical events when God kept his promise, when God gave evidence to the world that he was good on his word. And the thing is, the evidence of Jesus and his love is overwhelming. The history and the archaeology and the fact that a church exists just like Jesus predicted it would. It's unexplainable. Historians can't explain how the phenomenon of Christianity just took off like it did. The, the founder of the Christian faith was crucified by the Roman Empire, and within a couple of hundred years, it became the official religion of the very empire that put its founder to death. There's no explaining that without a supernatural force, without God behind it all, keeping his word. The fact that there is a Christmas, the fact that the whole world pauses to acknowledge actual events and an actual life that happened. It's why one third of the world's population believes that Jesus is the Son of God and came to demonstrate God's love for sinners. This is why we're people of faith. Christians don't have faith in faith, Christians don't believe in believing. We believe in in the evidence that God is. We believe in the evidence in our lives, in the lives of the people sitting around us, that God not only is, but that God is good, and that whatever God has promised to do, that God will do. And those who follow Jesus find ourselves with the confidence that God is, will do what he promised, and so we behave like it, and we act like it, and we live like it. And Christianity is simply an invitation to do what the author of Hebrews reminded us to do 2,000 years ago. We are simply invited to fix our eyes on Jesus because of the evidence that he brought into our world, because of the evidence that Christmas tells us, because of the evidence that the light of his life brought to our side of the window. That in days and in moments and circumstances where our minds still spin and swirl and our hearts stumble and, and falter when we go through and, and pain strikes a blow and suffering seems simply inevitable for you and for me, we wonder and we wonder and we wonder and we pray and we pray. The cross stands as evidence that we never have to worry about something so wonderful, about the love of God for us in everything and through everything. And I want to end today with some words from John. John 
said it so beautifully. And I love John's account of, of what he witnessed as he walked the earth with Jesus. And John was one of Jesus' 12 closest followers, three closest followers. And he was with Jesus throughout his short career. And then John, at the end of his life, wrote down some of the highlights to pass on to later Christians. And John was with Jesus, but John had also seen Jesus executed. He didn't just see the high points. He saw the low points, and he wept, and he cried. John was Jewish, and he lived during the time when the city of Jerusalem was surrounded and sacked and its people slaughtered by the Romans. John lived that heartache and that heartbreak. He had seen darkness. He had seen evil seemingly prevail and triumph over good. John had worshipped at the Jewish temple when he was younger, but John saw the temple destroyed, never to be rebuilt again. John was a follower of Jesus and John had seen the other followers of Jesus put to death in horrific fashion one by one by one. And John was at the end of his life having outlived all of the other followers and yet at the end of his life he writes this account of Jesus's life writing about his time at Jesus as John looked at the pain and the darkness that he had experienced and, and no doubt wondered about as he looked at the darkness and the evil and the pain and the suffering that was there the life of Jesus stood just in such stark contrast to all of the darkness. And as John kept his eyes fixed on Jesus, he wrote these words in John chapter 1, in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. And that light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not overcome it. As John saw all of the darkness around, he also saw the light of Jesus' life being duplicated and replicated in the people around him. People who had been forgiven and found mercy and acceptance and belonging within the Christian family who were in turn turning out toward their world and forgiving and inviting and reaching and telling everybody around that God loves you and has hope for you and has rescue and promise for you. People living out the Christmas, Christmas message. John would tell us that no matter the darkness we endure, no matter the pains that come our way, when life seems overwhelming and you wonder how God could possibly be present where you are because you can't see Him. You can't see Him in the circumstances. The life and the love of Jesus shines brightest when life is the darkness and darkest. And you don't have to wonder that you shouldn't have these things cause you to wonder about the love of God for you. You can have confidence that God is and that God will do what God has promised to do. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.